I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. of six queens we are going to talk about two of our queens who are not english and who came to england so they were the sort of traditional royal marriage of um a foreign princess coming to the court and we're going to talk a little bit about the proceedings that brought them to england in the first place but most of all we're going to focus on what it actually looked like for these women to come to England. So the journey, but then also like the pageantry that accompanied their journeys because there was a lot of pageantry and a lot of symbolism around like how they were getting there and when and that kind of thing. I've been kind of looking forward to this episode, not least of all because I think it's something a bit different that we get to talk about, you know, in terms of them coming to England um, and their, their voyages over here. But because I get to talk a little bit about Henry VII and you can't get mad at me for bringing <laughs> him up and he is relevant. This episode will be fun because we actually get to see these women coming into kind of an unfamiliar territory. Like we think of them obviously as queens of England, but that's not how they started. And so we get to kind of look at their first impressions of their new country and their new subjects, but also just both of them kind of being completely out of their element. And both of their journeys to England, Catherine of Aragon and Anne of Cleves, were a bit tumultuous. Like Catherine's much more so, uh, which a little bit foreshadows what they actually experienced (laughs) once they got to England. Yeah, I think Catherine's journey here is very, very fitting of the life she would have someone actually described her crossing um, when she was traveling over from Spain to England and they were talking about the waves and they were saying the waves were so fiercely wrought and I was like oh if that's not (laughs) if if that's not a shadow of things to come for Catherine I don't know what is. And Anne of Cleves um, because she was marrying Henry after like a, a year and a half gap between you know Jane Seymour dying and her marriage contract being uh signed Anne of Cleves was coming into this and everyone was just so excited to have a queen again that I think she was just very (laughs) overwhelmed by all the pageantry and Henry was convinced that this was, you know, the new love of his life and so he had arranged all of this stuff for her. (laughs) Just want to turn around, turn that ship around and just go back to to modern day Germany and and to Spain because, nope. But like we said, um, and we said this before in our uh, early queenship episode, these were Henry's two most traditional marriages in this sense, like sending away for a foreign princess was something that the King of England was supposed to do. It was a sure way to get an alliance between countries and these arranged marriages happened often. It's actually weirder that the majority of Henry's queens didn't have to do any of this because just when you look at the history of English queens, the majority of them are not from England or or Britain. They're princesses mostly from Germany, I think. But it's it's the best way to make an alliance. It's something that you capitalize on if you can. Yeah. If we're going to start with Catherine, I think like you, Catherine of Aragon, I think that you say hers is very, very typical. Her entrance into England is very typical. You know, she was uh, had an arranged marriage to secure a political alliance uh, between Henry VII and Isabella um, and Ferdinand. 
basically the French king, Charles VII, had managed to annoy everybody. Um, so they were thinking, no, no, let's let's kind of make a, a pact here. And then one of the, the major ways to sort of kind of seal that alliance, but also part of the alliance that they formed, which was actually called the Treaty of Medina del Campo, was to secure the marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Arthur. So that, in its sense, and you know that that treaty was formed on the 26th of March 1489. That's all very, very typical. Yeah. Uh, so just as a reminder, when Catherine's marriage is being negotiated here by her parents and then by Henry VII, it's actually to Henry's older brother, uh, the Prince of Wales, Prince Arthur. And they're both really young, right? Like this is yeah. a match made from their childhoods. Yeah, so this match, as I say, it was made in um, March 26, 1489. You know, and then Catherine arrives in England finally um, on October 2nd, 1501. So you've got a good 10-year period there where this has been negotiated. And she, like you said, like she is a child. Her and Arthur are both children. But still a really good coup for Henry VII because, you know, England's, you know, not a inconsequential nation but it's it's still kind of obscure so for henry to nail the uh one of the biggest prizes on the marriage market is uh pretty sweet for arthur yeah my, my boy doesn't mess about he knows what he's after he knows what he needs <laughs> <laughs> i think when you look at the the kind of triangle of 16th century relationships it's you've got england you've got france and then more broadly the holy roman empire but you know typically spain always kind of in this triangle of no you're making me mad i'm gonna sign a treaty with somebody else no you're making me mad i know Just, it's hard to keep up with who's getting along and who is hates each other like you know the burgundians marry into wit's family but then we hate them and now we hate them and <laughs> it's a lot but it doesn't mean that henry the seventh um like this was a, a really good long-term investment because yeah. even if even if relationships between England and Spain were to fall out, they there was always that blood tie in Spain to kind of make Ferdinand and Isabella think, uh, well, you know what, our daughter is the Queen of England, so maybe we won't, you know, double cross them, or maybe we won't start a war. Because, like we said, marriage is the sure way to gain an alliance. If your kid is there, you're not going to make their lives harder. Yeah, we're, we're not about to pull a Henry II and um Eleanor of Aquitaine and just burn everything to the ground children be damned like it's just uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) what is interesting though because I think when we think of Catherine of Aragon we do tend to think of her as you know the example I suppose of Spain and Catholicism and things like that you know especially uh, in the 16th century but if you like us, like a good family tree and like digging in family trees, she actually has a really interesting relationship to the English crown and to kind of monarchs. So I think, what did we find? We found that she was related uh, to, to a descendant from John of Gaunt, just like everybody else, really. Right, because uh, John of Gaunt married one of his daughters into um, either Spain or Portugal. Uh, we should have looked this up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, she was descended from John of Gaunt because very similarly, he made a smart political alliance and he married some of his descendants down into Spain. So again, you have all these family ties connecting all these European nations. And the hope is that that is insurance against any kind of wrongdoing. But as we know from World War One, that will eventually explode. 
<laughs> and again, that is a story for a different day. But I think it's interesting that brilliant alliance aside, like we, you know, we know that that went really well for both sides. Catherine, from a very young age, was raised to be Queen of England. So it's almost like her Spanish identity was stripped pretty early into her childhood. I mean, she was learning how to be a queen, but also preparing herself for this journey of having to leave home. Like there was always that inevitable journey, you know, on the horizon in her mind when she was growing up. It's like with every year, the clock's probably ticking of like, I'm not going to be with my family in five years, four years, three years, which I cannot imagine. That just must have been, I know it's what they did and what they were used to, but it just seems so stressful. It's, it does seem like a strange, way, a strange way to kind of mark your formative teenagers, doesn't it? Of... Yeah, soon I won't be here, you know, spend time with me now. But uh, like she communicated with, with Arthur, and so there must have been a little bit of familiarity there, which must have helped. But still, she's she's being educated to leave. Like her whole childhood, she's being readied for this inevitable journey. And it's just that's just... I know that's the reality of their situation, but it just seems so cruel when you're, you know, six, seven years old. Yeah, I think I think we mentioned this last episode, so forgive me if we didn't, but she was one of five children, right? And so she had some sisters who were older than her, because Catherine was the youngest, who had already been starting to be married off to, you know, different different monarchs of Europe and, you know, going to start their own lives and things like that. So, you know... It wasn't necessarily purely a theoretical concept of counting down the days. You know, she was seeing this happening and the reality of what was happening to her her family, which was that they'd be spread across the world. And it's just, yeah, like you say, it's it's a bit hard to wrap your head around because we're not brought up that way for, for the most part, not brought up that way or educated that way. So Catherine was still a teenager then when she finally had to say goodbye to her old life, which... I mean, going from, you know, sunny Spain up to England, she must have been a little, uh, <laughs> she must have been a little upset about that. I don't know what you're talking about. It's sunny here all the time, and we just get nothing but sun and, like, 100 degree, like, 30 degree heat all, all year round. It's lovely. <laughs> I know, but just having, I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures of um, the Alhambra, which is a palace in uh, what was Granada, but, and then conquered by Catherine's parents. But it just looks so sunny and beautiful. And, you know, there's blue skies and these beautiful, like, water features and fountains. And then, I don't know, hold up, like, Windsor Castle next to that. And like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it doesn't really compare. And um, it must have been quite jarring because Catherine herself, actually, it's quite interesting because her parents didn't make the voyage to England with her in 1501. They actually um, said their goodbyes um, for four months before she left. So the original departure date was on the 25th of August. So what's that? April, May, June, July. No, May, June, July, August. So, yeah, it would have been about May time that she would have said goodbye to them. And then she was delayed again. Um, her, her passage to England was delayed um, by a whole extra month due to what we in Britain call inclement weather. Other people might call storms. I don't know. <laughs> We're actually really lucky that one of the people who was sent from England to 
quote-unquote fetch Catherine and bring her back was somebody who wrote an account and it's available online like we both found it on internet archive and found it really easy to read but it's interesting because all of the drama of Catherine's voyage is pretty well recorded so obviously we don't have like her personal thoughts but we do know that um, she must have been saying a lot of prayers on those ships because they sailed through a lot of inclement weather (laughs) it's such a good word (laughs) what's a little bit of rain okay you know really big gales and uh you know huge storm surge whatever (laughs) and i think that's often the thing that people tend to wonder about with catherine was you know what 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 was she doing on that crossing to england was she praying was she thinking of home you know and i think it must have been such a lonely trip because you're going to this whole new place. And you don't know. I mean, you've corresponded with Arthur, but you can't really say that you know him. Probably, I mean, I wouldn't. But it's often something, like I said, it's something that we wonder about. That, but but we just don't know because the person who left the account, and I say person deliberately without giving much detail, um, because we don't know who who wrote the account. It's very very likely that they were a member of Henry the Seventh's household. But we don't know much more about them than that. But they were very big on, you, you know, documenting the crossing and, and the arrival of Catherine into Plymouth rather than focusing on her as a person, which which makes sense, really. Yeah, it's, uh, it's he's going for the drama, right, of the, the stormy seas and everything. It's just then you imagine the 15-year-old girl who's below decks on this ship probably vomiting her guts out if, I mean, if she's anything like me. <laughs> and thinking, why am I doing this? I know I'm supposed to be doing this. I know I've preparing, been preparing my whole life for this, but what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> no man is worth this. <laughs> no, I know I'm going to be Queen of England, but... Uh. <laughs> Make it stop. <laughs> Which I think uh, it's... I think it's hilarious then that um, the English get really mad about it, but Catherine's ship sails into Plymouth when it finally reaches yeah. England. They were supposed to go to Southampton, but they went to Plymouth because it was probably like, oh, good, there's England. Let's just park there. <laughs> just, just get me off this ship. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Which, for my geography is not great, so apologies, but like if you think about the... The, the bottom of England where Plymouth is and uh, where London is. You couldn't have landed further away from London if you tried. It is literally, there's a place near Plymouth uh, in Cornwall, which is a little bit further down, called Land's End. Like, you were literally about to tip off the end of the coast. Like, that is how far away it is from London. So when um, Catherine makes her trip from Plymouth, um, it takes them another month to get there. And uh, she's already so far behind schedule because they had to delay the original trip like she started and then they sent her back because of the storm and then the crossing itself was probably really long because of the continuous storms and then she lands in the wrong place and then everyone's trying to scramble and figure it out so this is just uh 
this is stressing me out and it i know it happened 500 years ago <laughs> I, I like this account as well that you can tell how frustrated henry the seventh is getting and he so he sends someone who's a kind of renowned naval captain on one of his favorites called um stephen brett to help the spanish ships safely onto english shores not for altruistic purposes but so he gets the dowry and that basically the, the treaty is completed <laughs> I, I just love this idea of a really impatient human but can you just go and get her like i've had enough now like just do what you need yeah. to and i mean i hope she's okay i hope you know she gets to rest and whatever but she has her dowry right all of the gold and the plate is with her right that, she yeah they didn't have to like throw that off the ship right like that came. <laughs> that's so that's so indicative though of like Catherine's role like it is great that she's there but it's what she symbolizes and what comes with her more than her as a person herself like yeah hope hope she enjoys England and you know hope she makes it here safely but it's more for to like you said to complete the treaty and then to get the money rather than her herself yeah you know and i think we're, we're going to talk about this a bit more in next week's episode when we look at her marriage and widowhood um but you know she has to she has to adapt so quickly to everything that happens but even though she lands in the wrong place um it's recorded that like, her her kind of docking at plymouth to be a triumph and the thing that i find my my favorite thing and i couldn't actually find um, the exact quote for this so i do apologize was that her arrival was noted in margaret beaufort's book of hours now anybody who knows anything about margaret beaufort knows that she was not an easy lady to please but so the fact that catherine of aragon all she had to do was land and she makes it into uh, to her book yep well i mean again it's what she symbolizes it's uh england's connection with one of the most powerful nations yeah. in the world I, that would be something that you'd probably record of like, okay, she's ours, we got her. So, like we said, we're going to pick up on Catherine, uh, the her continuing story in next week's episode. But just wanted to focus now on what it meant for her actually coming to England. Because it feels like something that we wouldn't necessarily need to dedicate a whole episode to. But there's so much there to unpack that it was super interesting to just consider I mean, it's very poetic, the fact that it was such a mess because it foreshadows everything that she would go through later. But also just in terms of the pageantry and the politics of what it actually took to get a political pawn, a future queen, to her new home. logistics involved of getting you know in the 16th century of getting a new queen to england from another country is not enough to make you need a good cup of tea or coffee i don't know what will be well and the good news is that uh we have another one to go through in uh <laughs> so again uh we're talking about something maybe a little bit out of order because for anna cleave's side of things we are going to be talking about her marriage negotiations and then what actually happened once she arrived in England in future episodes later in the series so definitely stay tuned for those and don't feel bad if you feel like you're missing part of the story we will be addressing all of that but just because we're talking about Catherine's trip to England we kind of want to juxtapose it with Anne's because though 
they are similar, there are a lot of really interesting differences. Um, I mean, Anne of Cleves's trip wasn't half as exciting as Catherine of Aragon's, <laughs> first of all. But it's just, it's not quite on the same level. It's not a daughter of Spain. It's a daughter of a minor, you know, German duchy. It's, it's a little bit less thrilling, dare I say. I mean, to be fair to Cromwell, he did try his best to secure a, a foreign match where he could that was useful to him at the time, because I think at this point yeah. we are very much into the Reformation that was taking shape in England. Well, uh, again, we'll go into this in more detail, but basically the gist of why Anne of Cleves was chosen as Henry's new queen uh, was because she was Protestant. Her family was Lutheran. Cromwell thought it would be a really useful alliance for England to have considering that he he felt like all of the reformed nations, the nations that weren't following Rome anymore, needed to kind of band together. And Anne, while not a daughter of the most powerful monarchs in Europe, was kind of a living embodiment of this idea that England's committing to reformed belief now. Like, we're, we're in this. It's not just like a whim. It's not just we're going to marry Anne Boleyn and whatever. We're in this now. Uh, when Anne's marriage treaty was signed in 1539, Europe took note that the King of England was actually becoming really interested in reformed politics. I think the celebrations around Anne of Cleves and like her arrival to England kind of reflect that. Like there's more of an interest in Germany and the Low Countries and that area of reform rather than in the sort of old centers of power. It's also quite interesting, I think, because Anne's arrival, so Anne Cleves' arrival to England, is where I think we get to see a bit of the old Henry VIII and the romantic Henry VIII just kind of re-emerging. Well, I don't know if we can call it romantic or lustful, so that is, that is up for you to decide. <laughs> but and he's just so excited, he just can't wait, and he just wants to go and meet her. And it's interesting because a lot of Henry's enthusiasm for Anne of Cleves was due to the fact that, like, Catherine's voyage to England, Anne of Cleves's was delayed by bad weather. So she also arrived about a month later than was originally planned for. So Henry was getting really antsy, which is, I think, where a lot of the anticipation comes from. Like, I mean, he did think, you know, this is going to be a love match and this is great. And he was probably enjoying that kind of having that like meet cute, basically, that first meeting. But he also was probably really antsy in the same way that Henry VII was of like, okay, is she here yet? What's going on? Like, what's happening? <laughs> I love that idea. Can we call it a meet cute if it's forced upon people? Sure. I mean, he, he Henry did his <laughs> damnedest to make it a meet cute, which we'll talk about <laughs> in a future episode. Before, before all that, though, we're slightly getting ahead of ourselves. The marriage treaty was signed in 1539 in October. And unlike... Catherine, who had virtually her whole childhood to kind of get ready for this. And like we said, she grew up knowing that she would inevitably have to make this journey someday. Her parents are preparing herself to be a queen. Anne of Cleves's brother signs this marriage treaty. And then a month later, Anne of Cleves leaves home. So she has a month to get her affairs in order to uh, assemble her trousseau like all of her gowns and everything she's bringing to England a bunch of ladies are assembled to accompany her on the trip she even gets somebody who comes from England to kind of like tell her what's going to go on and from a feminine point of view teach her what's expected of her in terms of English tradition and culture but it's still only a month like her whole life is just being completely turned around 
And now she's going to have to make this trip and become Queen of England and marry a guy she doesn't know. It takes us like more than a month to plan a holiday, let alone uprooting your entire life and being told you're going to go and marry somebody. Like It just yeah. it makes this, your head spin. And this isn't the very cultured, refined, worldly court of Spain. This no. is a tiny little duchy in northern Germany. And comparatively to all of the others, actually led a very sheltered life. She was not very cultured. She very rarely was in the company of men, even. It was seen as kind of improper and immodest for her to talk to men besides her family that often. She wore these very, like, bulky, shapeless clothes. Like, she just was not very well-equipped to, I think, go out into the world by herself. Like, her parents taught her... Her parents taught her how to be a gentlewoman, of course. Like, she could do all the, quote, things that were required of her, like needlework and other things that they thought it was important for women to know but in terms of like if you compare her to somebody like a Catherine of Aragon or even an Anne Boleyn she didn't speak any other languages Uh, she couldn't have these like lively discussions these intelligent conversations that Henry loved she couldn't even play the card games that Henry liked to play so now all of a sudden you're being thrown out the door of like okay have fun being the Queen of England it's not quite as impactful Actually, it is, though. So her entourage is actually made of her train, at least. So all the people who are traveling with her from Cleves to Calais, which is where she'll catch the ship over to England, it is made up of 263 people. Oh, I stand corrected. I'm very sorry. <laughs> yeah, like, I hate I hate to disagree with you, but actually... I no, that's fine. More, I think they made it more of a spectacle because Anne was coming from this small place they're creating a new alliance and they're pulling out all the stops and like i said all of the people who were in this sort of protestant league in northern europe were really excited about the match so when Anne was processing from cleves to calais it actually took a really really long time it took her like three weeks because she was having to stop in all of these cities and like go through like all these grand parades of entering cities and people would want to meet her and talk to her and see her so she's yeah, actually so cool yeah she is being lauded as the future queen of england and everyone's really excited for her it's just that she herself is feels probably so minor and sheltered that it's sort of like a what are you what are we doing here for example when she reaches antwerp in november 1539 there's this big welcome for her. She's received by the English merchants who are in Antwerp. She There's like a little parade through the main city streets. And then she's staying at the Grand Manor home of a really well-known English merchant. But he invites people into the house. There's almost like this open house to receive her where people can come in, like fellow Englishmen can come in and pay their respects. So she can't even like go and stay the night somewhere without being like bombarded by well-wishers that's so interesting i never knew that about her yeah she actually became a public figure almost right away that's so interesting because that's completely kind of blown my my perceptions and again i think a lot of that like you said comes from the fact that she does come from this minor house but at the same time it does make so much sense so that they go to that extra effort to make such a, a display of her 
Well, like I said in the beginning, too, England's gone almost two years without having a queen. Jane Seymour died in the in October of 1537, and two years later, finally, now we're getting this replacement for her. And so people must have been pretty excited uh, in terms of who is she? I want to see her. Let's after all the drama of the first three, let's see if we're finally getting like the stability on the queen's throne. So I think just people were very curious and welcoming of her in general, which we don't know enough about her and her personality to say, like, I'm sure she was completely overwhelmed by it, but was there part of her that was enjoying it too? You have to wonder. I think I'd sit on the side of yes to that, because if you look at her later, like, and I get she she maybe learned to, to grow to love it. You know, if you look at her later life, you know, in the, the house that she kept after her and Henry divorced and um, her love of kind of gambling and being surrounded by people, may, maybe she did. Anne arrived in Calais, which is in France, it, but it was English territory because it was the area uh, controlled by England that was the shortest crossing of the English Channel. So it was one of their major ports. Anne arrived there on December 11th, 1539, and she was welcomed there by the infamous, well, not infamous, but we just, we all know him and love him, Lord Lyle, who was the governor of Calais at the time. He is quite a prolific letter writer. Um, one, his, the letters exchanged between him and his wife and all their associates are a treasure trove of information for the period. So we're very lucky that he was the governor of Calais because he writes a lot about Anne's reception into the city. Just like in uh, other cities along her progress, there were huge, you know, sort of parades put on for her. She was taken to the harbor to, like, inspect the ships that she would sail over to England on. And then she was met by the person Henry sent to Calais to kind of see her over, which was uh, the Lord Admiral Sir William Fitzwilliam. And he was kind of like her escort. He was conducting her around the city. But just sort of like, again, like Catherine of Aragon, there was a ton of bad weather. It was December at this point. There was there were storms. There was cold wind blowing. There was a little bit of snow. So they delayed her crossing. And she ended up having to be there for like an extra week, kind of just twiddling her thumbs, waiting for the weather to turn. And at this point, she and Fitzwilliam actually get along really well. And Fitzwilliam is kind of horrified that she doesn't even know how to play cards. So he teaches her how to play cards, which she loves immediately. And so they they kind of they form a little friendship. But still, there's a lot of this like this waiting game, this biding your time, which on Anne's side must have been kind of painful because you just kind of want to get there and get it over with. (laughs) And on Henry's side is painful because he just wants to see her. He's dying of curiosity. He's like writing to people like, where is she? Is she here yet? Where is she? Is she's not in Calais yet? Where is she? (laughs) She just wants to get, quote, home at this point. And then there's Henry just being like, play with me, play with me. Where is she? Where is she? Where is she? And all the people in Calais, like Lord Lyle and Fitzwilliam, keep having to come up with things to, like, entertain her. <laughs> like, oh, well, well, the wind hasn't changed today. So, I don't know, you want to play another round of cards? or? <laughs> I so really, I, enjoy, I, yeah, I, to be fair, I really enjoy Lyle's letters, like you were saying, because the paranoia that comes out in them. Yeah, he's a very uh, stressed out guy. But he, <laughs> no, but he did, he handled this really well. It seems like everyone in Calais was really excited to see her and receive her. Uh, she she was a hit, like wherever she went in her sort of overground crossing, everyone came out to see her and talked about how much they liked her and how sort of genteel she was and how polite and 
she was. A few people described her, though, as being demure, which is sort of our first red flag for what's to come. I think we all know essentially what's to come, so we all kind of know. <laughs> but, but I mean, she must have been exhausted, so we will give her the pass. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not always a witty conversationalist when I've been traveling for that long. I don't actually think I've ever traveled for that long to get somewhere, so fair play to her. Anne finally left Calais for England on uh, the 26th of December. So we're into the sort of 12 days of Christmas celebration, which she was supposed to be in England for. So this is how late we're running, right? Like Henry had planned this like beautiful like Christmas wedding and she was going to be there for the festivities, (laughs) which as we said in our holiday special was one of like the highlights of the court every year. And though it might seem odd to us because like on a clear day you can see across the English Channel it's like it's right there her trip took 17 hours oh yeah she left in the evening of the 26th of December and arrived the morning of the 27th that's rough literally because the sea would have been rough as well it it (laughs) literally was rough (laughs) but she made it and uh, she rested for a little bit at Dover Castle before continuing on her way. And just like, you know, on the continent for her, that part of her journey, she was well received. Everyone talked about how lovely she was. And at this point, I think she just must have been exhausted. But this is almost the part that counts, right? Because once you land in yeah. England, it's like, all right, showtime. I'm about to meet my husband. I'm about to meet all my subjects. This is this is it. you got to switch that energy to 100. I mean, again, it's for a later episode. We'll talk about what happened. <laughs> it's a doozy. <laughs> but when you when you get to that episode, keep in mind everything we said here and just think about how exhausted you would be. Absolutely. Just to kind of maybe come full circle a little bit, you know, with, with these travel logs, you know, these stories don't, as everybody's well aware, like these stories don't end with the, you know, the princesses as they were at the time um, landing in England. You know, they're then thrown into the murky, muddy world of the English court. And everything you do is being observed, like whether it's by the the author of the account of Catherine's trip or like a Lord Lyle figure, everyone's writing their impressions of you. So you have to be on all the time. You are being judged as the future Queen of England. And meanwhile, like we said, too, you're facing all the personal personal turmoil of I've just left my family and my life and my home behind and I'm being thrust into this world just no thank you (laughs) no 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 thank you so much for listening to this episode of six queens on the next episode, Kate and I will discuss Catherine of Aragon's early years in England before she became Henry's queen. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, so that's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Long live the queens! <laughs>